Good morning, children of God here at Real Life Church. Once again, we have the privilege of letting His Word speak to our hearts. When we sing a prayer like we've just did, Spirit of the Living God, speak to us, and we say we're hanging on your Word. You haven't come here to hear some smart aleck preacher's words. You've come here to hear the Word of God. And so we make no excuse for saying that that's what we're going to be doing again here this morning. We're going to be looking at His Word particularly blessed by the third song that uh, reminded me that every time in Israel when archaeology um, is at its best, they find fragments of writing from um, ancient Jewish scriptures. One day they found a little scroll, a little silver scroll, and they carefully unrolled it, and it comes down to us as the earliest Hebrew writing, and of course the words were, the Lord bless you, and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace. From Numbers chapter 6 verse 24. These are ancient words. These are powerful words. These are true words. And these are the words of the experience of God's people. I love it when God's people put Scripture to music. There was a time, I don't know, somewhere around the, I suppose, the, the 70s, when there was that fashion of taking Bible verses and putting them to music. Early this morning, as I was thinking about that this is a sermon concerning thanksgiving, I thought about someone had taken from Psalm 116, I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. And there's that other verse that goes along with it. We bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord and we offer up to you an offering of thanksgiving. You see, when we express thanks to God, we are bringing Him glory and praise. This is not going to be Turkey Day on Thursday. Forget that political correctness. This is going to be thanksgiving again. Thanksgiving to a real God for real blessings by real people in real time. We do not hesitate to say that this is a nation upon, in whose history there was genuine belief in God. Yes, like every other nation, we make mistakes, we do things wrong, but the, the joy of looking back to people who knew where to give thanks is still with us today. So this morning, as... I ponder where we've been in 1 Peter. I believe there's some verses in there that are reasons for Christian thanksgiving. Before we get to that, let's read from where we left off last time. We're going to turn to the fourth chapter of 1 Peter and read a couple of verses from there. 1 Peter chapter 4, let's start from verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body... Arm yourselves with the same attitude. He or she who has suffered in his or her body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do. What is that? Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. And now, the same pagan, says verse 4, they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. Go figure. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
For this reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they may be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Verse 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he or she has received to serve the others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one of speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. And God's people said, Amen. The word of the Lord may come to our heart with fresh blessing today. Began to think about our journey through 1 Peter that we've been privileged to have together. And so this morning, I want to take the word thankfulness and look at what 1 Peter has to say about reasons for thanksgiving. I want to challenge both of you that are here and those of you who are watching there at home. Would you consider between now and thanksgiving, take pen and paper and write down some reasons to give thanks, some particular things for which you are grateful. First day or two will be easy. You have all kinds of things that come to mind for which you're grateful. But then when, when Tuesday afternoon or Wednesday or Thursday morning comes and you've used up all the normal ones, you might have to ask God to open your eyes for some unusual reasons for thanksgiving. Well, I want to start this morning with a very unusual reason for thanksgiving. When I see the T in thanksgiving, I think of 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7, which says, Troubles have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I want to suggest to the born-again folks here this morning that trouble is a good reason to give thanks. Now, none of us are lovers of trouble. You aren't, and you aren't, and I'm not. And yet, the Bible is saying to us that when trouble comes, that these come so that our faith may be proved genuine. You see, it is one thing to be incredibly spiritually feeling here in church. When the singing's good, and the folks around me have smiled, and the seats are nice, and the air is great, I even found a good parking, then I feel so spiritual. Ooh, it's so wonderful. But when the traffic's horrible, and these jerks here in front of me are going so slow and dawdling, and I've got to get to my appointment, or when I'm sick in bed, and the thermometer is, is climbing, and <laughs> when trouble comes, then the real you comes out onto the stage. I'm sorry, folks, but that's the truth. Who you are in the day of trouble is who you really are. Oh, don't say that, Pastor. Ooh. I don't feel very spiritual when I've got a bad headache. I don't feel deeply moved to praise God when my bank balance is low. These things that come, God allows them so that your faith may prove genuine. It's only in experiences like that that you and I get to praise God by the way we respond to trouble. You see, there is a way the world responds to trouble. It's the long face. 
It's the, the folks that looked like they were baptized in vinegar. That, ooh, things are so bad. There was a gentleman in South Africa who my friend and I used to wonder when he would come up to us, and my friend would say, every time, we are, well, how are things doing today? He'd say, ooh, things are bad, ooh. This is not the response of the church of God. We don't love trouble, but we understand that it's one reason to give thanks that God has entrusted us with trouble. One day I was sitting in a service, and a lady who had retired from the mission field was giving her testimony. She'd had bad news from the doctor that week about her physical health. She started her testimony with words that absolutely shook me as a young preacher. She said, I want to praise God because this year he's going to trust me with weakness. Who talks like that? The born-again child of God talks like that. The child of God who says trouble isn't in itself pleasant, but it is able to bring me to the place where I can bring praise and glory and honor, and I can do it until the day Jesus is revealed. There was a lady in the church in um, New Jersey, a bedridden lady, couldn't get out of bed anymore, but people would come to her bedside so she may pray for them. And she didn't waste their time with long stories about her aches and pains. She ministered from her sickbed. God is able to bring you to the place where you're able to give thanks even in the day of trouble. Now, if you're not there yet, take heart. He is able to bring you there, but he doesn't want to do it with you kicking and screaming and clawing all the way. He wants to bring you to the place of spiritual maturity where you can see trouble for its eternal value. Now, when I see the H, I think of the reality of the word holiness. Holiness. Do not allow the evil one to suggest to you that holiness is an old-fashioned concept that cannot be lived in this day and age. Christ has died and risen and the Holy Spirit is coming to your heart at the born-again experience to give you victory over sin. You see, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15, we read these words, Just as He, God, who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Why is that? It's written, and he quotes from the Old Testament, Be holy, says the Lord, for I am holy. See, God our Father wants children like Himself. God is holy. God is not struggling with constant defeat by sin. He wants to empower you to live a holy life in this present age. Now, I recognize that it is a struggle. Now, I remember an old, old Christian song that spoke about take time to be holy. The world, it rushes on. But you take time to be holy. Spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. There is in your experience a journey. And as you grow as a believer, remember he talked about we started off as newborn babes eagerly desiring the Word of God. But as you grow, so the question of holiness will arise. God's not mocking you by saying, I've called you and I want you to be holy. He's not mocking you. 
It's not as though he's saying to you something that's going to always frustrate you and you'll never get there. So, Pastor, are you saying that it is possible for you to live in total victory over sin every day, all day? Is that how you're living it? Let's be real with each other. There are particular areas of sin with which you struggle that I don't. There may be some other area I may struggle with that you don't, and so the same with each other. I have noticed this is a reality in the Christian experience. Many times, some people are delivered instantly from, let's say, swearing or drug abuse. But they struggle for years with pride or with, with unbelief. Other people just immediately begin to trust God from the first day, never have another thought of unbelief, but somehow the cigarettes just have them bound and they just can never give up. Now, it's not the issue themselves, whether it's the alcohol or the drugs or the cigarette or the swearing. Or That's not the issue. The issue is what is God doing in your life to bring you to a state of Christ-likeness? The last thing you should be doing is comparing your experience with the experience of others. God has a particular checklist that He's working on in your life. And He knows that perhaps for you, this particular sin had to be dealt with right at the very beginning. But as you grew in His favor and grew in His experience with Him, as the holiness experience increased, as you increased in maturity in Christ, so He began to deliver you from other things. Don't you turn around and look at somebody else and say, how come you aren't set free from that thing? I was set free on the day I was converted. You don't have that luxury. God's busy dealing with each of us according to His plan. Now the end product is the same. Holiness is the end product. Holiness is the destination. Do not judge another Christian's journey by your journey. You trust God and pray for them that God's dealing with them according to His plan his time, His way, their life. Let's get back to you. Let's get back to what God's doing in you. He is saying to you, holiness is a real possibility in this life. So much more to say about that. Let's move on. Now, another great temptation that may come to you is that when it comes to overcoming trouble or it comes to being holy, the devil's saying, you aren't trying hard enough. You need to try much harder to get it done. I want to remind you that this is God's work, not your self-controlled, kind of self-pressurized, self-improvement plan. It all started with the A word, the word atonement. So when I look at TH and come to A, I think of what Peter is saying here in verse 19 of chapter 1. You weren't redeemed with perishable things. You were redeemed, says verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Here's the wonderful news from Scripture. God began the good work in you way back at the cross. One day, a lady came and, and sang a solo at one of my churches, and the, I think it was one of those country and western type Christian songs that said, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. And one of the young people said, how is that possible? You couldn't have been thinking about all of us when he was dying on the cross. No, perhaps not in the, in the human sense of he was going through a list of names in his head. But the reality is that your eternal life was purchased not by your good deeds, not by your desire to do better, not by you slapping yourself on the wrist and saying, I've got to try harder. Your eternal life was purchased at Calvary. He was the Lamb of God who paid your sins in advance. 
When he died, atonement became possible. When he died, the atonement between you and God became a practical reality. God began a good work in you, says the Bible, and he is faithful and just. He will continue to do it and he will bring it to completion. Your eternal life is the gift of God. It's not of yourselves. It's not of works that you can boast. It is the gracious gift that God has given you. There came that beautiful moment when the Lamb of God died upon the cross that something happened inside the temple. Let me just talk to you a little bit about temple architecture. I'll just take a moment to do that. The way the temple was structured was there were various courts with barred gates that allowed various people to get closer and closer to the inner sanctuary of the temple. Eventually, there was a room where the priests would come and minister, called the holy place. But there was in that room a huge woven tapestry of a curtain, a barrier that said, you, even if you're a priest, cannot go any further than this. Keep out. The presence of Almighty God is behind this curtain. This is too holy for you to come in. But when the Lamb of God breathed his last, the curtain tore open. The keep out sign changed to a come in invitation. God was symbolically saying, by taking his finger from the top to the bottom of tearing that huge curtain to pieces, God was saying, now that my son has purchased atonement, all may be saved. God is not willing that any should perish. He wants everyone to come to him. This is the wonderful thing when Peter says, you weren't redeemed by some kind of earthly wealth, gold or whatever, perhaps the best of our thinking. You weren't redeemed by this. You were redeemed by the most precious thing the world has ever, ever known or ever will know. Nothing more precious than the spilt blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus God's spotless Holy Son, dying for you. Boy, if that doesn't give you reason to give thanks, what will? God loved people like you and me so much that He allowed His Son to bleed and die naked and bruised and beaten upon a cross so that his prayer may be answered. Father, forgive them. That's what atonement's all about. That's reason to give thanks. Now, I've been talking about stuff in the past. I'm talking about Jesus who died a long time ago in a place far from here on a hill way, way away. When I see the end in thanksgiving, a three-letter word comes to mind. It is the word now. And I find it right here in chapter 2 and verse 10. Let me read it to you. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you did not receive mercy, oh, but now you have received mercy. Ours is not just a pie in the sky, by and by Christianity. It's not all just about way back in the past and way back in the future. It's about right now. God wants to relate to you in the present continuous tense. You see, it is true that before we were born again, we were not part of God's people. Truth is, before we were born again, we were part of the world's people. 
Before we were born again, we served an earthly prince. Jesus called him the prince of this world. Before we were born again, our allegiance was to the standards and mores and ways of this world. We wore the fashions of this world. We spoke like this world. We thought like this world. Once you were not the people. But from the moment you were born again, you became part of God's people. And it's in the now. Right now. You're not going to one day be God's people. The moment you're born again, it becomes a present continuous right now. Right now as you sit there, you are part of God's people. Right now. Right now. But you see, we are God's people inside the realities of a present moment in history. This is very important for you to know this. When Peter wrote these words inspired by the Holy Spirit, saying to people, right now, you the people of God, he was writing within the times of the Roman Empire. The government of the empire was centered in Rome. The empire had its, had its borders stretched way across the face of Europe and into to North Africa and across Turkey, which is in those days, and should still be thought of as Asia Minor, I suppose, Peter wrote about them being God's people in the now amidst the days in which they were living. When I see the K, I see that there's a reason to give thanks for kings. Now, by the word king, I, I simply mean somebody in earthly authority. We are not called to anarchy. We are not called to be a people who do as we please and disregard the government God allows. You see, the reality is God puts people into power and he takes people out of power. You need to see human government as part of the way that God operates in human history. You don't have the luxury of saying, I'm not going to submit to any authority over me because it's all human. I'll do just as I please. I'll drive the way I please. I'll spend the way I please. I'll withhold my taxes. I'll... You do not have that authority. God is saying, you need to be thankful for human authority. Now, as Americans, you may not feel always that you agree with everything that the, the mayor does or the, the state governor does or the president does or Congress does. You may not agree with everything. You have the right to speak up. But you do not have the right to act like an anarchist. The Bible is saying you need to be thankful for those in authority. In fact, he says to us in um, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 17, he says these words. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the believers, fear God, and honor the king. It's only when you go and live in a country where there is no law and order that you realize how important it is to give thanks that you live in a country where there is law and order. You need to be a people who respect authority. I think you've said enough about that. I think you know where I'm going with that. Let's move back again to what he's saying about giving thanks as a believer. He says in chapter 2, verse 25, You were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Brings me to the F in the word thanksgiving, the word flock. 
You have been restored to God's flock. One day Jesus was trying to communicate to the people in his day his feeling towards those who go astray. He said, you shepherds, which of you has a hundred sheep? At the end of the day, you bring your sheep from the pasture, you bring them into the, into the stall, and you, you count 93, 94, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99, 99. Which of you as a shepherd, says Jesus, will not entrust the 99 to the other who guard the, the sheepfold? Gird up your loins and get out there and seek and seek and seek for that lost sheep. The shepherds kind of nodded their head. They understood. Jesus was saying, that's what I've come to do. I've come to seek and to save the lost. When Christianity ceases to understand that it's not just a club for themselves, it's in danger. One person said, Christianity should be the only society that mainly exists for non-members. Jesus said, I have come to seek and save that which was lost. I'm that good shepherd who goes out looking for where that lost sheep is. When I find the lost sheep, I put it on my shoulder and I bring it back home. Well, Peter says, here's a reason to give thanks. You were like sheep going astray. You were that lost sheep. Your lifestyle was heading for a place other than heaven. God in Jesus saw that you were lost and the Holy Spirit sought you and sought you and eventually brought you back home, back to the flock. As you sit there this morning, if you're a born-again child of God, you are one of the flock. But never get to the place where you're so satisfied to be one of the flock that says, the rest can go to hell. I don't care. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Let your heart be moved with the same compassion that the heart of Jesus was moved for. At the end of the Second World War, the Salvation Army sent one of its officers to Germany to serve those who were now living in holes in the ground. The cities had been bombed to pieces. He was a British man. He himself had seen friends die in the German blitz upon London. He himself had seen much atrocity that the Germans had perpetrated under the Nazi, Nazi regime. He went to Germany, and he went there with a kind of, well, finally I'm going to see they got what they deserved. But when he saw the brokenness, and when he saw the poverty, and when he saw the shame and degradation, he came back to his room and wrote, except I am moved with compassion, how does your spirit live in me? He talked about in word and in deed, a burning love is my need, and I know I can find this in you, Lord. His attitude had to change because he was not just a doer of good deeds, a helper of the poor. He was an ambassador for Jesus. And Jesus seeks the lost to bring back to the flock. 
two more and we're done. I see the word you. And I come to our reading this morning. Can't help it. <laughs> I think about my own experience. You see, when I became a Christian, I lost my old friends. When I became a Christian, suddenly I found myself on the outside of every conversation, sometimes mocked and jeered at for my new way of life. Now, I was a very zealous new Christian. And looking back on it, some of them had good reason to be shocked at my change in me. In fact, one of the choruses in those days said, there's a great change in me. I'm so happy I'm so free. It's the truth. But Peter says, you need to realize you are unlike the folks you used to hang around with. In chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, those folks, they think it's strange that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. When you find yourself at the place where you no longer appreciate the smutty, dirty jokes that the old folks that you used to hang around with tell, when you find yourself at the place you no longer approve of the same vulgar fashions that may be available to the worldling, give thanks for God has done that in you. He has made you different from the world in which you live. See, it's Pastor, but it's very hard. At work, they persecute me. At work, they, they jeer at me. Take heart. They mocked your Savior. They rejected him. They'll reject you too. But it's a reason to give thanks. For God has made you unlike this present society. Yes, they will heap abuse on you. Yes, they will think it's strange that you've changed sides. Be grateful. But I come now to the best of it all. T for troubles and H for holy and A for atonement and N for now and K for kings and F for flock and, and U for unlike. Ah, but 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Give thanks for those who love you. Give thanks. For in the process of living, what a joy it is when someone loves you, cares about you. I told the earlier congregation about something that happened in Pasadena, California. The pastor's name was Earl Lee. Some of you remember him from years ago. He had taught his congregation a little song. The little song says, Did anybody tell you I love you today? Did anybody tell you I love you today? Put me on your list. Let me be the first. I love you today. And the congregation learned the song and began to sing it. A man took his young daughter, she must have been about seven or eight, maybe even younger, to the grocery store to buy the groceries. While he was taking things out of the cart and putting it at the checkout, he heard the little girl singing. She was singing, did anybody tell you I love you today? He turned around. She was singing it to an elderly lady who was next in line behind them. The elderly lady began to cry. At the end of the song, the lady said, Little girl, it's been many years since someone told me they loved me. Above all, love each other deeply. This is the will of God for you, to love and give thanks for love. If you're loved by one person, 
I'm talking about other than God's love, which is eternal and present and real for everyone. You are rich. Give thanks for love. Well, Thanksgiving is coming. I want to close the service in an unusual way. I'm going to ask you where you are right now to think of one or two things for which you're grateful, really grateful right now. And we're going to offer those things up to God as a symphony of praise. While you stand, let's, let's get ready to pray. Would you stand? Just there where you are right now. Bring the words to mind. Maybe you're thankful for a person. Bring their name to mind. Maybe you're thankful for a particular situation. Bring it to mind. Our gracious Heavenly Father, your children have all these things in their heads at this moment. We gather them together. We lift them up to you with a collective thanksgiving upon our, our, our thoughts and our attitudes, Lord. We are grateful that you've allowed these into our lives. For some of us, it's family members, spouses, children, grandparents, uncles, aunts. For some of us, it's family, and we're grateful that you've given us family into which to live. Others here know of people who are deathly ill and we're still living in our health and we thank you for sparing us and giving us health. There are others here this morning that are thinking concerning finances. They still have a job, others don't. They are grateful. Ah, but Lord, after we've thanked you for these, the earthly things, we end this morning by saying, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you came. You did not want heaven without us. So, Jesus, you came here to bring heaven to us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Ah, oh, we are so grateful we've had this time here in your house. Lord, we are blessed that your word, again, has been fresh to our hearts. Your word has been real to us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being present with us to tell us your word. Now, those of us who are going to vote, we want to vote, Lord, according to your gracious plan. Those of us who are going to vote, we want to vote according to your will, Lord. So we pray you give us peace to, to vote according to what we believe deep down inside. But now as we leave, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Oh, may the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. God bless you. Thank you for coming this morning.